The rest of us will remain up here and have a good time with this new series. So it's going to take us uh, through a number of weeks on through actually uh, November. And so I uh, trust you'll gain some good understanding here. So I want to start off the morning by reading several passages of Scripture that all have a, a common focus that will become obvious pretty, pretty quickly. Psalm 119, verse 89, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. In that same Psalm, verses 130 and 131, the unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the, wa- for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Then also in Thessalonians, 1 Thess- Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All scriptures God breathed and is useful uh, to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, not done yet. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And finally, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to pray and we're going to go home. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> yeah, we're good. This morning we are kicking off a new series that I'm pretty excited about. And it's called Understanding the Bible. Understanding this book that is eternal, this book that stands firm in the heavens, this book that gives us light and understanding, this book comes from the mouth of God, accomplishing what He desires and achieving His purposes. This book, which is at work in those who believe. This book that corrects us when we are wrong, teaches us to do what is right, and prepares and equips us for good work. This book that is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. This book will stand and endure forever. This book was written by men who spoke for God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book is not just ink on paper, and this book is not just any other book. One of the core values of our church is biblical faithfulness. We went through all the different core values as a, a, a series before. But biblical faithfulness, it, it, we, we made the statement that we value the Bible as God's holy word and the authority over our lives. And in order to value something, you have to understand it first. 
And so for a few weeks, we're going to have to have, have several messages here about understanding the Bible. Now, it seems like the day that everyone has an opinion about the Bible. Some say that the Bible is a pack of lies, stories made up by men, it simply meets the needs of weak-minded people. And others say that the, that, that the Bible is God-breathed and is the hope of the world. The questions I have for us today is, what do you think about this book, the Bible? Do you believe that it is true, that it is from God? Do you believe uh, those things? How seriously do you take it in your life? Is it just nice to have around on a coffee table, or do you read it? Do you follow its teachings? And is it a guide or a compass for how you live? Do you understand it? Do you find it kind of intimidating at times? And would you like to understand it or maybe even understand it better? Well, as we go through this series, uh, we will touch on some topics about this that will help us be able to hopefully in some way be able to grasp a little bit more uh, understanding of, of uh, God's Word, the Bible. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the topic of we can trust the Bible. Next week, we're going to be looking at the story of the Bible. And then following that, we're going to see how we got the Bible. And then, of course, uh, finally, in a, a, a series of weeks, we're going to look at the principles for seeing the Bible in HD, high definition. So let me ask you this question. If God exists, and of course he does, if God exists, and if a non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always existing, unique, good, and moral God who loves us were to write a book, what kind of book would it be? I think, among other things, a book written by God would be unique uh, in a class of its own, uh, it would be accurate. We could trust what it says. It, it would be supernatural. It would, it would know some stuff that only God could know. And it would be transforming. It, it would radically change the lives of people. Is there such a book? Yeah, there is. This morning, I want to make the, cause, uh, for, uh, the case for the Bible being that book. So you can trust the Bible because, first of all, the Bible is unique. The Bible is unique. Noah Webster must have had the Bible in mind when he wrote the definition of the word unique. Check out the, def the definition of the word unique. It says, one and only single soul, different from all others, having no equal. There are several, several ways that the Bible is different from all other books in the world, and it has no equal. One of them, the Bible is unique in its composition. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it was written by 40 or more different writers from all walks of life, including kings, military leaders, peasants, poets, fishermen, prophets, statesmen, priests, scribes, scholars, shepherds, fig pickers, and even an IRS agent. The Bible was written in many different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. Daniel, he wrote in a palace. Paul wrote behind prison bars. Luke, while he was traveling. 
and John while in exile on the island of Patmos. And the Bible is written in a wide variety of literary styles. In this book, we have poetry, we have song, we have romance, we have law, we have biography, prophecy, historical narrative, parable, and also allegory. And there is no other book like the Bible in its composition. It, it truly stands alone. And I challenge anyone to find a book written over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages, three continents by 40 more men, and yet fit together so perfectly. The Bible is unique in its composition. The Bible is also unique in its circulation. It's the most published book in history. No other book even comes close. 100 million copies of the Bible are printed and sold every year, and the total number of Bibles sold is estimated to be around 6 billion. The Bible is unique in its circulation. The Bible is also unique in its translations. In fact, the Bible was one of the, mo one of the first books ever translated. In 250 B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language and given the name Septuagint. And the work was originally produced for Greek-speaking Jews living in Alexandria who could no longer read Hebrew. And most books are never translated into another language at all. And almost, among those that are, most are published in just two or three languages. Far fewer books see translation figures rise into the teens. But according to the Wycliffe Global Alliance, it's a Bible translating alliance made up of about 100 organizations from 60 nations. They uh, report that the full Bible is in 682 languages, and that would represent about 5.4 billion people. The New Testament is in uh, 1,543 additional languages, which would represent about 700 million people. And portions of Scripture uh, are in uh, 1,121 additional languages, which would represent about 400 million people. So 6.5 billion people altogether in 3,346 languages of the 6,900 languages in, in the world. The Bible is being translated in a lot of different ways. And at this very moment, an army of thousands are at work to translate the Bible in the world's remaining languages. In fact, uh, work is in progress for 2,500 additional languages right now. Your phone or your iPod or whatever, your mobile device, if you have the Bible app, the version uh, has about 1,100 languages all on its own right there. Faith comes by hearing, that movement that happened, and I know we all went through that when it went, uh, came through this church as well, has recordings of Scripture in 1,100 languages as well. The Bible is unique in its translations. The Bible is also unique in its survival. Attempts to destroy the Bible have always been a part of this remarkable, remarkable book's history. In 303 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy all Christians and their Bible. The persecution that followed as a result of this edict was one of the most brutal in Roman history. Toward its, toward its end, Diocletian ordered a monument to be erected, and on it he had these triumphant words inscribed, the name Christian is extinguished. But 25 years later, Diocletian was dead. 
and his successor, Constantine, legalized Christianity and ordered 50 Bibles prepared at the government expense. <laughs> In 1776, Voltaire, the French philosopher, announced that 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian, a curiosity seeker. Well, yet 100 years later, his very own house and press were being used to print and store Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> Ironically enough, at a public auction held 100 years to the day of Voltaire's uh, prediction, the first edition of his work sold for a grand whopping 11 cents. But a Bible manuscript was purchased for over half a million dollars. As Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Bernard uh, Raum, uh, he was a theologian. He says, A thousand times over, the death bell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession has been formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. The Bible lives on. The Bible is unique in its survival. The Bible is also unique in its influence. The Bible is without a doubt the most influential book the world has ever seen. It, it has set more pens and brushes in motion than we could even imagine. The Bible has influenced such great artists as Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, Rembrandt, and Michelangelo, and great musicians like Bach, Handel, and Beethoven. And the Bible has inspired over 400 great works of art and musical compositions. And not only has the Bible had great influence on the arts, but on nearly every other walk of life. In fact, the Bible has influenced governments, philosophy, and judicial systems for hundreds of years. Our own Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Judicial Code as well was grounded all in the Bible. The Bible has influenced many of history's greatest people. Some of them have quoted about the Bible, like Abraham Lincoln. He said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given man. And George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Napoleon, <laughs> he said, the Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. And Patrick Henry said, the Bible is worth all other books which have ever been printed. Charles Dickens, he said, the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. And then Benjamin Franklin said, a, Bible's every a Bible in every home is the principal support of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. And Woodrow Wilson, he said, when you have read the Bible, you will know it is the Word of God because you will have found in it the key to your own happiness and your own duty. A man has, uh, has deprived himself of the best there is in the world who has deprived himself of this knowledge of the Bible. And then Ronald Reagan he said, I have found that the Bible contains an answer to just about everything and every problem that confronts us. And I wonder sometimes why we won't recognize that one book could solve our, uh, solve our problems all for, for us all. And as Sir Walter Scott lay dying, he said to his friend and biographer John Lockhart, he said, read from the book. Which book? asked Lockhart. And uh, Scott replied, there is but one. <laughs> the Bible is unique in its influence. The Bible is also unique 
in its continuing universal appeal. For centuries, people from all walks of life, young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, male, female, kings, peasants, slave and free, people from all over the world in different places, from different cultures, have read this book. Think about it. The Psalms and the Proverbs are over 3,000 years old. And just as these words spoke then, they still speak today. That's, that's crazy. How many, how many other books containing 3,000-year-old poetry do you read on a regular basis? <laughs> Probably as many as I do. Zero. People read books all the time. And most of the time when they are finished with a book, they throw it on a shelf or in a box, maybe in a closet until they decide to sell it for 25 cents at a garage sale. And then they look for another book that will entertain them, help them escape to, or, or, or teach them something new. But it's different with serious Bible readers. You see, they never seem to finish the book. <laughs> and even if they do, they are never tempted to put it away for good. Instead, they read it over and over and over again. I've been intently reading this book since about 1986 when I became a Christian. So for 33 years now, I've been reading through this book. Some of you have been reading the Bible much longer than me, and, and some of you have also read through the Bible many, many times. All those are good, and I encourage you, if you haven't yet been able to do that, reading through the Bible in a year, that is a great thing to do. But if God were to write a book, it would be unique. It would be different from all others, having no equal. So, yes, we can trust the Bible because it is unique. We can also trust the Bible because it is accurate. The Bible is accurate. The Bible is accurate historically. So, here's a question. Is the Bible good history or bad history? Which do you believe? Is it good history or bad history? Do you even know? Let me start with some easy examples of what bad history might be. Listen to these phrases and tell me why it's bad history. This first statement. World War I was a bitter four-year conflict fought from 1904 to 1908. Good history or bad history? Bad history. And why? The date. The date, exactly. Bad history. Wrong date. World War I was actually fought between 1914 and 1918. Good history pays attention to the dates and gets them right. Bad history doesn't. Okay, second statement. World War II was a bloody conflict between Allied and Axis forces fought on the battlefields in central China and southern Africa from 1939 to 1945. Good history or bad history? Bad history. And why? Wrong place. The dates are right. The dates are right. Wrong place. The geography is wrong. World War II was fought... It was not fought in South Africa and Central China, but mostly in Europe, in the South Pacific, and a few other places as well. Good history gets geography right. How about this statement? You get this one real quick. The Soviet Union premier, Margaret Thatcher, will always be remembered as a leader who engineered the unraveling of the USSR. <laughs> uh, was that uh, revisionist history? <laughs> It's the wrong person. It was Gorbachev, of course, you realize that, not Thatcher. 
Good history pays attention to the people facts as well. Here's one more. Michael Jordan played basketball for over a decade for the Chicago Bulls in the 80s and 90s, but his play was just average. <laughs> now, you, you think, you know, okay, maybe the date's right. Yeah, is the place right? Sure, okay. You, you know the person's right, Michael Jordan. But the whole storyline is wrong. It wasn't just kind of an average player, as all of you know. Michael was a little better than average. Bottom line, bad history among other descriptions, could be defined as any account of an actual event that plays loose with dates and places and people and storylines. So all of that just to say that when you study the Bible and you compare it to accepted history, the events surrounding the teachings of the Bible have all been well-established historically. The Bible is not bad history. In fact, the Bible is not just good history. The truth is that the Bible has proven to be outstanding history, even better than the records of secular historians. You see, not only does the Bible pass the muster with regard to dates, geography, people, and storylines that it references, but what has happened in recent years with the advent of archaeology is that the Bible has proved to be true and secular history and Bible critics were proven to be wrong. Prior to archaeology, when there were disputes between the biblical record and the secular uh, record of history, critics of the Bible would jump up and say, yeah, okay, you can't trust the Bible to be true. Look, it can't even get simple events of history right. And so for years, these critics proudly strutted around like they had defeated the Bible. And in their minds, they thought that they had the Bible on the ropes, were moving in for the knockout punch. But before the final bell sounded, the Bible pulled a Rocky Balboa and knock them to the canvas instead. You know, let me give you a couple, couple examples. The Hittite example. For years, critics of the Bible kept pointing to a, Bible, uh, to a people group mentioned several times in the Old Testament, a nation called the Hittites. And secular historians said, no such group of people ever existed. This is purely fictional. There's no record of them anywhere. The Bible is bad history. Then, in 1906, archaeologists unearthed not only evidence that the Hittite nation once existed, but they located their capital city and 40 other key cities that made up the Hittite empire. One more example, the Pilate example. The name Pilate was said to be a figment of the gospel writer's imagination. There was no historical record of the famous governor who gave the go-ahead for Jesus' crucifixion. Then, in 1961, a helicopter was flying down the coast of Israel and noticed a strange circle in the sand, which led to an excavation of an entire city named Caesarea Philippi and a magnificent amphitheater. And on the walls of that amphitheater was a plaque dedicating it to the man who built it. His name? Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. So this kind of thing has happened scores of times, in, in the last hundred years, where what was thought to be bad history in the Bible suddenly became good history because of archaeological evidence. So much so that the author and apologetic William Lane Craig said he thinks it's high time that the writers of Scripture get their just due for taking great pains to be accurate in even the smallest details surrounding the events of the Bible. Uh, Craig says uh, the biblical writer Luke, who penned the book of Acts in the New Testament, 
demonstrated uncanny geographic precision when he references certain cities and towns and villages that he and the Apostle Paul traveled through during the first missionary journey. And Craig says that each city, each town, each village that Luke mentioned squarely exactly squares exactly with the record of secular history just matches up perfectly and craig says that he's amazed at luke's grasp of government as he uh, cites the official names of the prelates and magistrates and proconsuls and uh, governors of this day and craig says this he says it would have been pretty easy to get at least one of these wrong but luke gets it right luke gets every single one of them exactly right and Craig also says that Luke gets it right when he describes terrain and rivers and mountains and valleys and wells and buildings and even the coinage of his day. So it all squares with the other historical references, every single word. Even though the Bible was not specifically written as a history book in the strictest of sense, I mean, you don't pull it off the shelf if you want to know about uh, world history, but the Bible passes the historicity test with flying colors. Dr. Nelson Gluck, uh, probably the greatest modern authority on Israeli archaeology, he said this, he said, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological finds have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. So in other words, when archaeologists want to know where to dig, they use the Bible as a map. So the Bible is accurate historically. The Bible is also accurate textually. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, uh, about the Bible's textual accuracy when we get to the message, how we got the Bible. But when you enter just about any university, before you even have time to watch your first football game in the fall, a professor will more likely give you an assignment to read, probably from Plato and Aristotle, <laughs> the towering giants of philosophy. Their writings have had enormous influence and thought, uh, of thought over the years. No one questions the content of their works. No one questions the reliability of the text. No one questions whether or not their writings have been passed on to us responsibly or whether or not some errors are there have crept in along the way. Instead, the Plato and Aristotle we have today is simply taken as an accurate representation of what the authors originally wrote. But did you know that there are only 12 existing copies of their handwritten manuscripts? Only 12 to study and compare in order to determine the accuracy throughout the years. How many manuscripts do you think uh, there are for the New Testament? 20? Maybe 30? 120? I mean, 120 would be good. Have 10 times as many manuscripts as the biblical text, right? Um, well, there's a whole lot more than 120 copies. <laughs> Let me show you here in, in uh, this chart, you'll see in this table. Plato, you probably barely read it, it's pretty small. Plato, he lived and wrote in 427 to 347 BC. His earliest copy was in 940 AD. And a time gap between the time he, he wrote and lived and the time of his earliest copy, 1,300 years. How many copies? Seven. Aristotle lived around 384 to 3, 322 B.C. 
And earliest copies that was made was in 1100 A.D. Time gap there is about 1400 years. How many copies? I mean, manuscripts? Five. Now, the New Testament, <laughs> written or between 40 and 100 A.D. The earliest copy was in 115 A.D. And the time gap, 70 years. And that time gap is important because that's where knowledge kind of fades a bit. And how many copies? You see it there, 5,856 manuscripts done. And you can add to that number 20,000 manuscripts of 2nd and 3rd century translations. You can also uh, realize 1 million quotations by the early church fathers who wrote from the late 1st uh, century to AD 300. So you've, you've got a whole bunch of other manuscripts as well. Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, he was director and principal librarian of the British Museum and second to none in authority for issuing statements about manuscripts. And he said the following, he said this, the interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extent evidence uh, becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. And then Jack Cottrell, he's an author of a book called Solid, the, uh, the Authority of God's Word. He said, apart from trivial variations, such as those in spelling and word order, it is estimated that we can be sure of 99.9% .9 of the original New Testament text, and the remaining one-tenth of one percent contains nothing Crucial. So, okay, so how, how about the Old Testament? Is it accurate? Well, in 1947, the world experienced what may be the greatest archaeological find of all time. Shepherd boy tosses a rock into some caves near the Dead Sea, and here's a jar break. As a result, God gave to the world a gift he had been protecting for nearly 2,000 years, the Dead Sea Scrolls. In one dramatic stroke... A thousand years were hurtled in terms of age of the Old Testament manuscripts. And before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript was 900 A.D. After the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript was 200 B.C. So if God were to write a book, we could trust it. Because it would be unique, and it would be accurate, and then also, too, it would be supernatural. The Bible is supernatural. And what I mean by that is that the Bible knows some stuff that only God would know. Let me share just two things that point to the Bible being supernatural. The first is fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 says, And do not forget the things I have done throughout history, for I am God, I alone. I am God, and there is no one else like me. Only I can tell you what is going to happen when, even before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. <laughs> there are hundreds of Bible prophecies that have been fulfilled, specifically and meticulously through the centuries. But I only have time to talk about a few. Uh, one of the most uh, remarkable, I guess, of all, uh, all the all of them, is the prophet Ezekiel's prediction. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it's about the downfall of the city of Tyre. In Ezekiel chapter 26, you can read it there, the first 14 verses. I won't read it to you, but you can look it up later. But the Bible foretells with miraculous precision the destruction 
of this city of Tyre. The prophet Ezekiel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would destroy the city in verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 3, it tells that many nations would come up against this city of Tyre. In verse 4, it tells us that the city would be leveled and, and scraped clean like a bare rock. In verse 5, it tells us that the surrounding area would become a, a place for the spreading of fishermen's nets. And in verse 12, it tells us that the city's stones and timbers and soil would be cast into the sea. And then in, in uh, verse 14, this, it tells us the city never would be rebuilt to its former glory. Well, guess what? <laughs> Secular history records that each one of these predictions came true. Tyre was a, a coastal city that uh, had a somewhat unusual arrangement. In addition to the inland city, there was an, in, uh, an island about three-fourths of a mile offshore. And Nebuchadnezzar besieged the mainland city in 586 B.C. But when he finally was able to take the city in about 573 B.C., his victory was hollow. You see, he did not know that the inhabitants had left the city and moved to the island in a situation that remained virtually unchanged for the next 241 years. Then, in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the city, but not with ease. To get to the island, he literally had his army scrape clean the inland city of all building timbers, all stones, and all dirt. He then dumped all of that, all those materials, into the ocean, so then building a land bridge to that island. Yet even though Alexander inflicted severe damage on the city, it still remained intact. In fact, it, it waxed and waned for the next 1,600 years, until finally in AD, uh, 1291 A.D., the Muslims thoroughly crushed Tyre. So the city never regained its possession of wealth and its power. The prophet Ezekiel looked 1,900 years into the future and predicted that the city of Tyre would be a bald rock where fishermen gathered to open their nets. And that is exactly what history records as having happened. Modern-day uh, travelers who have visited the site of ancient Tyre report that only a small colony of people exists there. And guess what the people do for a living? <laughs> they fish. They fish with nets. In their 1976 book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman tried to attach some real-world yet conservative probabilities to each of these predictions. I've mentioned him before, these guys before. If we assume that Ezekiel made some good guesses about Tyre's fate... That would be the chance that he might guess correctly every time. So uh, what, what, what would be that chance that he would guess correctly every time? That chance, these two authors, Stoner and uh, Newman, say, turns out to be 1 in 75 million. 1 in 75 million are the odds that that would happen, that chance would happen, that uh, Ezekiel would get them all right. So to offer an, uh, an analogy... An individual is twice as likely to be killed on the ground by an airplane during his or her lifetime than to make the same number of predictions Ezekiel made and have them all come true. So, how could Ezekiel do that? I suggest that God told him. <laughs> that God told him how to write it and what to write there. And if you have trouble agreeing with that, you may want to watch out for falling airplanes. <laughs> but there are over 100 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Prophecies about his birth, his ministry, his teachings, and his death. 
And because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have manuscripts of these prophecies that date 100 plus years before Christ's birth. Now, I've mentioned this before, that someone has calculated the odds of just eight of those prophecies coming true in any one man. And it's the same odds as covering the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and having a blindfolded man pick out the one marked coin. <laughs> that is it's the same odds. Fulfilled prophecy. It points to the fact that the Bible is supernatural. It knows stuff that only God can know. And the Bible is also supernatural in that it provides pre-science knowledge. Pre-science knowledge. The round earth. <laughs> 2,000 years before Columbus proved that the world was not flat, the prophet Isaiah had already spoken to the roundness of the earth in Isaiah 40, verse 22. It says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Infectious diseases. The Bible is also very clear about keeping people with infectious diseases like leprosy away from the rest of the people. Again, obvious to us, but if people would have followed the Bible's teachings in the 14th century, the 60 million people, the one in four people who died from the Black Death may have lived. And th this is kind of gross, but up until the 18th century, human waste was dumped right into the streets, spreading disease and killing millions. I mean, people would just dump it out of second and third story windows. In London, in 1846, Edwin Chadwick, member of the Board of Health in London, tried to figure out how to stop a cholera uh, epidemic. It had killed over 16,000 people. <clears throat> he found that people who were poor and lived in basements were more likely to die. <laughs> Why? Well, <laughs> because this is where the raw sewage from the streets settled when all that was dumped. If only they would have followed what Moses said 3,000 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 and 13, people would not have, have had to die. It says there, designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up, cover up your excrement. Yeah, pretty simple. Now, that might not be your life verse. I hope it isn't. But um, it's good advice. <laughs> good advice. When does the Old Testament tell the Israelites to circumcise their sons? Remember? On the eighth day. On the eighth day. Yeah. The eighth day in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. Why is that? Why is the eighth day important? Well, 1935. A Danish biochemist and physiologist, Henrik Dahm, discovered vitamin K, and which is what causes the liver to make substance known as prothrombin, prothrombin excuse me, that helps blood to clot. What he also discovered is that on the eighth day, this blood clotting agent is two times the normal level, and it only occurs on this day. So, day eight is the perfect day for circumcision because the bleeding would be able to clot better. Who knew? God did. No, one more example. Up until even the 19th century, doctors believed that harmful vapors entered the blood and caused sickness. So, the practice was developed of putting leeches on people to draw out those vapors. Veins and arteries located just below the elbow were also opened to bleed the patient. <laughs> Have you ever seen a barber pole before? Well, in the Middle Ages, they did more than just cut hair there. <laughs> you ever wonder why those colors are there? What, what's, what's the red, white? It's not, 
USA stuff. Barbers kept a fresh supply of leeches stored in a basin on top of that pole. The red color represents the blood. The white indicates the bandages, and the blue indicates the veins. So they were indicating this is what we work on, this is what we do, this is what we have. I wonder how many people would have lived longer if only they would have listened to the Bible. You see, 3,000 years earlier, Moses said in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 and 14, he said, the life of every creature is in the blood. <laughs> so here they're, they're leaching out all this blood, they're bleeding them out to try to get all these fumes out and everything. Yeah, they're losing people left and right. And how did Moses know that? Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Moses had God help him through all that as well, too. Pre-science knowledge and fulfilled prophecies point to the fact that the Bible is supernatural. It knows stuff only God could know. And finally, the Bible is transformational. The Bible transforms our lives. There's no book that speaks to us like the Bible. No book that better understands human life and human relationships. In this book, we find out how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a, how, how to be a better parent, a child, just a person in general. We are taught how to control our anger, control our tongue and our money. This book is full of wisdom for life. It seems to know exactly what we need to do to have joy and, and peace, hope, purpose, freedom. I was telling someone the other day about how at the camp out, of course, my mom passed away on Monday, and the camp out wasn't done until Monday afternoon, and my cell phone didn't have service there, so I did not know what was going on with my mom. Found out later when I got out of uh, uh, that area into cell phone service and, and such. And so it was difficult going through all that, and I had some small regrets about, you know, why didn't I go back with Becky and, and Brianna when they went back on Sunday night? I could have been there. Could have realized what was going on. Just the other day, just, uh, so that was Monday of, of the camp out. Just previously, this Sunday, those of you who were there gave a devotion on the uh, if-onlys. If-onlys in life. And how we, we, we might have regrets in our life. And the if-onlys that happen, don't let them crush you. Don't let them paralyze you. Realize that God is taking you through those things. And the if-onlys need to be set aside to be able to follow Jesus as he leads you through those difficult moments. <laughs> there I was Monday doing the same thing, realizing, wait a second, <laughs> God already spoke to me about this. How does a book do that? How does any book do that? Only the Bible does that. The Bible is able to transform lives. It's able to guide and direct how can this book know people, know you, know me so well? It understands us better than we understand ourselves. How is this book able to expose us for who we really are? How is it able to straighten us out and help us do what is right? 
How can this book know so much about us? May I suggest that the reason is because it was written by the one who created us, who created me, who created you. Why does it transform lives? Because it is true, the Bible is true, and it is the very word of God who knows you inside and out. He knows what you need, when you need it. When you boil it all down, most people's problem with the Bible is not that it contradicts itself, but that it contradicts them in what they want to believe. <laughs> we need to change. We need to get the different perspective. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going to lead us in a couple songs. As they, as they do, let me just summarize here real quickly that we can trust the Bible because it is unique. It's in a class of its own. It's in its composition, in its circulation, translation, survival, influence, and universal appeal. We can trust the Bible because it is accurate. We can trust what it says historically and textually. And the Bible is supernatural. It knows some stuff that only God could know. Though it, uh, and, and, and through its uh, fulfilled prophecy and pre-science knowledge, it, it is supernatural. And then finally, of course, the Bible is transforming. It can radically change the lives of people because it's written by the one who created us. And as I mentioned earlier, we don't go to this book for history. We don't go to this book to find out what went on in the Middle East historically. It's, it, it's accurate in that way. We go to the book called the Bible, mainly, I trust, to be transformed, to realize God's speaking to us through his word. And I trust that as you go through these days, whatever you're going through, whatever it might be, that God's word will come to you in such a concrete way that you'll realize, wow, this was for me. This is what I needed today. There have been a lot of scriptures that I have needed in the last few days. And it has helped me and carried me along. And I trust for you as well, too, that God's word will continue to be living and active in your life as well. That as you read it, even that, that, that maybe that familiar verse or passage of scripture that you might go to all the time, that you'll find something new there. That the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to something even bigger and better that will apply to you today. Thing is, we've got to open up God's word and read it. If we're not doing that, it can't do that for us. <laughs> but if we open it up and we read, then it can be transformational in our lives. Let, let me pray, and then we'll have some singing. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would just remind us how incredible your word is, and that as we have it with us, we have it so accessible Lord, that we would realize the value of it in our lives and that we would want to read it each day. And maybe not in a way where we just flip over in a, a page and go, okay, Lord, speak to me, whatever it is. That we would have an intentional Bible reading time to know you better and to know your will for our lives as well. well Lord, thank you for how your word is living and active. It guides us through each day. It gives us what we need when we need it. And so, Lord, we thank you for how you provided that for us. I just pray, Lord, that today we would all realize that uh, we need to value your word in our lives even more. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. And I just pray, Lord, that you continue to speak to our hearts as we continue with the singing. In your name we pray. Amen.